Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we continue our series on the Gospel of John. Enjoy. Let's get into our study then for today. We're in John 4, and we're continuing with this interaction, a very interesting interaction that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. We kind of remember the story. Uh, he, he is traveling on his way uh, back to Galilee, and he's cutting through uh, Samaria. And the reason why that is a big deal here is because the relationship that Jewish people had to Samaritans was well known. There was absolutely no love either way. There was a lot of prejudice. There was a lot of bias. There was a lot of judging of the person based on their heritage, based on the history that, that uh, uh, those folks had had with each other. And we talked a little bit about that last week, that that history went back centuries so it went back to the time when uh, the uh, Israelite people were carried off into exile in Babylon, and then how those people survived. The people that went off to Babylon, they survived by accommodating themselves in many ways to the culture of, of the Persians, of the Babylonians, who were pagan worshipers. And so in some sense, they, they adopted to the culture, to, certainly to the language, certainly to the learning They ate the same food. They did all those kinds of things. With one exception, do you remember in the story of the of the group that was carried off into uh, into Babylon? Who was the one who didn't, and in some sense stood up to King Nebuchadnezzar and to that culture? Do you remember who that was? Daniel. Remember, Daniel. So the story of Daniel, the lion's den, the whole thing. All of that, he was, he was one who did not do that. But as a result of that sort of accommodation, if you will, to the culture, that meant that there were some people whose trueness to Judaism was suspect. So that sort of set the stage then for the conflict with uh, Samaritans, because the Samaritans were among the people who stayed behind. They were among the remnant that, that was not carried off into uh, into Babylon. And because they stayed behind, they also adapted to the culture of the pagan culture of the Assyrians and of those who uh, remained in, uh, in, in Israel. And so then that meant they also were suspects. So uh, 400 years before these, uh, these things happened, and that history was not just simply remembered, it was recalled. Okay. Does that make sense? The difference between remembering something and recalling it? Recalling it meant that the story of that was repeated generationally year after year. So what became a fact in some sense was that that prejudice and that bias was there all the way through the ages. So now fast forward into Jesus's life, Jesus' ministry. He goes through Samaria near the town of Sychar, where Jacob's well was located. And this woman comes, and he's, he's tired. He's been, it's been a long day. He sits down at the well, and a woman comes to draw some water from the well, and what does Jesus do? He says, give me something to drink. And what does she say? 
She says, I can't believe you as a Jewish man are asking me a Samaritan for something to drink. And that's where we pick it up for this morning. So in verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given, he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to him, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. What's going on in that conversation? Is Jesus is talking about water and thirst at a different plane, isn't he? At a different level. He shifts the conversation. See, the conversation up to this point was primarily centered on the the, that bias and that prejudice that existed between, uh, between the Jew and the, and the Samaritan. And what Jesus does is he shifts that conversation from talking about earthly things to now what does he do? He's going to talk about heavenly things. He's going to talk about things that are of a spiritual nature. And so what he does, he, the way he does that is very, is very clever. He says, if you knew the gift of God... So he shifts from talking about regular water, water out of the well, to now what he describes as living water. Now, it's very interesting. I did not realize this, but um, Bob pointed this out to me last week, that in the Gospel of John, the reference to water is often used as a synonym for a reference to the Holy Spirit. And if you take a look at some of the scriptures that I have there on page 35, you'll see kind of that link, okay, that connection. In 1 John 5, 6, he says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. The linkage there to water and the Spirit are undeniable in terms of how, how John treats that. Also in Titus chapter 3, 3 to 6, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Not a very uh, complimentary list of, uh, of how we are by nature. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By what? By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So oftentimes when we talk about baptism, this is one of the one of the scriptures that we use to support that, that you have the washing, which, which again, the presence of water would suggest washing. Of course it does. Uh, that's one of the uses of water, right? But then this idea of regeneration. So uh, remember uh, back in John 3, 
when Jesus encountered Nicodemus. He talked about this idea. He said, unless you are what? Born again or born from above or born anew. Well, that's the same idea of this word regeneration and renewal. But notice again the link. The link is to the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is present in and with that water. And then finally in Revelation 21, and Jesus said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will uh, give from the spring of water of life without payment. So again, lots of linkages scripturally, but in terms of John's use of that, as he is talking about Jesus talking to the woman. See, she's thinking physical well, physical water, thirsty, Oh, how much better it would be if I didn't have to come here every day and draw the water. I mean, you can see where that's like the total thing that she would think that way. Very practical perspective. And Jesus takes the practical moment and he says, we're going to move this now into the spiritual. And initially, she doesn't get it. But neither did Nicodemus, right? And we're going to see that through the scriptures, particularly as we work through John, that Jesus does this shift into spiritual stuff, and the people that are around him are going, what? What? You know? And, and, and so that's that, that's that, that um, expansion, if you will, of, uh, of our, or transformation of our thinking, that he moves us into something different that we're not expecting. Yeah, Tim. Uh, going through those three verses right there, I mean, Titus, it talks about like baptism, Revelations, it talks about like springs of living water, but on 1 John 5, 6, he came by water and blood, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. I mean, how, what, how does it correlate water and blood, or how do those two go together? It's just the shedding of blood is what he's talking about. And again, we remember in Jesus's crucifixion, when they put the spear into his side, what was it that came out? Water and blood separated. So that's a reference. So it's referencing like the spear that was cut to him, or is that is water a synonym for spear? Again, it's just a it's it's a way of John of John using the synonym of water linking it to the spirit and blood linking that to Jesus. Okay? So again, it um, sometimes there is not clarity, <laughs> but particularly when it deals with the Gospel of John. So to some degree, best guess, right? But there does seem to be that link between the two. Did you want to add something that to, to that, Bob? Well, I would only add that the water is the Holy Spirit who gives you the forgiveness. The blood is the payment for your sin. That's correct. So the linkage is the Spirit with water and the blood with Jesus. Absolutely, yeah. Payment. And, and that's the reference in Revelation is that I will give him the spring of the water of life. How? Without payment. See, the, the payment has been made. I mean, that, that price tag has already been, been uh, taken care of by Jesus. And that's what Titus brings that out as well, is that it's according to God's mercy that this has happened, not anything that we could have done as if we would even be, uh, have the capacity to do that, okay? So again, if you notice the, 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 uh, the words that are used to describe 
of this gift of God, what the, the link is, living water, never be thirsty again, spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, that is what we have now. It's not like we have to say, oh boy, I sure can't wait till I get to heaven and then I'll have it. No, you have it now. The, the reality is now, but what isn't now is that we're not there yet. So it's that already not yet reality that we live in. And you see, that's what gives the Christian hope that other people don't have, or at least don't have a source of a, a secure kind of hope. Uh, you know, the word hope is kind of a future-leaning word, isn't it? it? It's something that is not yet fully realized. It's, it's sort of coming up, right? We, that's what we talk about in, ter- in terms of hope. But the Christian lives in the reality of what we already have, and we can't wait to get there. And that's what carries us through the times in life now where if you looked at the situation just on face value, you would say, this is totally hopeless. There's absolutely no way that that anything good can come out of this. There's absolutely no way that I can get through it without uh, being devastated. And yet the Christian can turn back to verses like this and say, yeah, but we're looking ahead to something different. We're looking ahead to something new. Yes, Peggy. Can we not, uh, I've always had a problem with the hope. The hope? And needing to call that assurance. Mm -hmm. We know we have the assurance of heaven, Mm -hmm. and yet we refer to it as the hope of heaven. Mm -hmm. And of course, how hope comes across in my brain is we hope for it, but we're not sure of it. Yes. So the assurance is much more... You, you like that word, assurance? Can I put I that instead of... Let's hope? change every hope word in the Bible. <laughs> because that's kind of what that is. It's, it, when the hope is based on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, okay, that best him, right? When, when hope is based on something not of me, but of God's mercy and what Jesus did for me, then that turns hope into something more than wishful thinking. If the hope is based on, on my ability to be a good person and to do everything right and then make sure that everything I do right is enough, then it's wishful thinking. Because the problem is, is that I know in the back of my mind the one or two times when I dropped the ball or when maybe I had doubts or maybe I thought that I was hitting the target and it turned out I wasn't. So because I have doubts, and we all do, then there's that hope is wishful thinking. Does that help? Sort of a win up. Whenever I have, which I do, and not everyone agrees, that uh, one saved all the saved. Yeah. I have no, I don't have no other belief to that. Okay. So I'm wondering if the hope can be related to people possibly that supposedly are saved. Yeah. But then they lose their faith and they lose their salvation. Mm-hmm. Then that plays into hope with them. Where with me, my strong belief is that I'm saved and I'll always be saved, Mm -hmm. that God can, no one can take me from God's hands. Right. So then my word then is assurance rather than hope. Yeah. 
And certainly what you're saying, you can always think, well, I've dropped the ball here. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe this hope plays into that. But at the same time, I know that my salvation is not lost. That's right. So, again, it's what are you basing the hope on? Is it based on something of God or is it based on something of self? And it's of self, then the element of doubt will always creep in. And then there will be some question about whether or not you've done enough and you've done it uh, right and, and all those things, right? But see, that's why that hymn is so wonderful. My hope is built on nothing less. And we have to stop right there. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And all the verses of that hymn, which that's like my favorite hymn. Would someone note that for my funeral, please? That'd be awesome. <laughs> As I'm being ushered into the columbarium, that would be awesome. You know, that's kind of a lineup of the elders or somebody singing that. Um, that'd be great. Do what? You're not planning on leaving us anytime soon. Well, there's, you know, you never know at my age. So anyway, um, <laughs> well, you don't. I mean, you don't. But see, that's part of the deal, isn't it? You don't know. So you're ready to go whenever, right? I mean, I got a few things to do yet, but, you know, you never know, right? Um, but see, my hope is built on nothing less. So what does the word built mean? What's built mean? Can I go back to hope for a Not yet. <laughs> well, I, Brenda, I'm on a roll here, okay? What does built mean? It's on the foundation, your foundation. So if the foundation is secure and God is building it, not me, then nothing gets in its way. But if it's based on me, or even some percentage of it based on me, then there's some question there. Because what do I got going for me? Without God, nothing. Okay? So that's, that assurance is a great word. Okay? Assurance. And, and the value of being reassured. See? It's not that you're going to lose your salvation, but that doesn't stop us in difficult moments from wondering about that. Particularly if you're struggling with a particular sin that you just cannot get rid of, whatever that is. Or you think, you look, you look at your past and you go, uh, wreckage, 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 right? And you think, that is not redeemable. That's when the doubts come in. And that's when we are reassured by the fact that the foundation is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's what the point I'm trying to make. Okay, Brenda, I'm stepping off of my soapbox now. Yeah. Okay, uh, see, I like dictionaries. When you actually look at the dictionary definition of hope, uh -huh. to desire with expectation of obtainment or fulfillment, to trust. Ah, to trust. Yeah. Is that the Google Dictionary or is that uh, the Webster? Merriam-Webster. Merriam that would I be. I have Merriam-Webster Dictionary on my phone. That's very good. That's very good. Okay. So say that again a little louder because I don't think anybody down there heard. Did y'all hear? Y'all heard, we'll say it again because I didn't hear it. To so. desire with expectation of attainment or fulfillment. Yes, to trust. to trust. The question is, what is it built on? What is it based on? 
And that's where you get that sense of security, certainty versus insecurity and uncertainty. Does that make sense? Yeah, awesome. Carl. That may be the case, but the word hope throughout Scripture is given actually the unbelieving dissenters ammunition because they just look at us and say, oh, you're just hoping. Using. Oh, the sort of, yeah, yeah the, and the of course ritual. It, you know, when I'm, I'm confronted with that, that item, I let's say, well, John 6 47 says, he who believes already has eternal life. Right. That's not hope, that's assurance. Yeah. So I go with Peggy. <laughs> so we have two votes for assurance. Very good. Do we? Is there a third? Is there a third? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Tom, sure. Tom, Tom agrees. Yeah. So we now have full all, all. And that's a good word. It's a good word. But again, see, it's it, the idea is what are you basing it on? And that's the question. See, that's the issue is. Is it based on something of God? If it is, then that has to do with God's mercy. Well, God's mercy means that I can't do it. See, to be a recipient of mercy and of grace, what does that say about you? That you need that. You can't do it yourself. See, if I I could do it myself, why do I need mercy? Why do I need God's grace? I don't need it. I can do it myself. That's the problem then what happens when I run into something in my life that helps me realize I can't do it? What then? And that's why, again, the mercies of God and the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that's that part about that nobody can snatch me out of his hand. Because his hand isn't like this. His hand's like this. Now, I can dabble in jumping out of his hand. I can do that, but why would I? See, why would I? Okay, you with me? Good, this is good discussion. Wow, let's get back into our lesson for today. How about that? All right. Okay, so here's the thing to think about, a thing to think about. There's a lot of people in our world today that are thirsting for something. And it isn't just smart water. It isn't just well water. It isn't just stuff that satisfies that uh, sensory sort of need or that need for water in terms. So if, if we take it out of the physical like Jesus did and move it into the spiritual as he did, I want you to give some thought to the idea of the question, what do people today thirst for? And where would you discover that or where would you discern that in terms of the answer to that? Where would you look today to get some sense of what people today are thirsting for. Where do you think you might look? You could go, yeah, you can go on social media, in fact, and discern from that what people today feel that they cannot live without. So what do you think some of those things might be? Sense of security. Sense of security that would come from what? Not necessarily financial security, but just a sense of well-being. A sense of well-being, okay? And you can discern that from the kinds of things that people post and people talk about and people react to. You sure can. A lot of anxiety. anxiety. You know, they talk about that today, that as much as we are connected via devices, we are more fragmented than ever 
because the human-to-human connection has been sort of substituted now for the uh, human-to-device and device-to-human, all right? So there's some of that to be said for that, okay? What else are people today thirsting for? Yeah, Philip. Purpose, belonging. Purpose. Some sort of value. Yes, uh, sort of being validated in some sense of kind of who you are, being appreciated maybe is some sense of that. Uh, maybe just not being alone is, again, one of those things that people often will describe. So I was listening to, uh, I was listening to a, 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 a radio. Uh, my car still has a radio, by the way. So... Um, I was listening to a radio interview yesterday about, an ex- it's either an experiment or it's a policy. I'm not sure which. Uh, do you know what Instagram is? Do you all know what that is? Okay, good. Oh, this is a very up-to-speed group. I love that. Uh, for some of us uh, older folks and young bodies, can you refresh us what Instagram is? Well, yeah, I can. So I got on Instagram because none of my younger nieces and nephews are on Facebook anymore. That's for old fogies, they told me. And they said they would rather be on Instagram. So on Instagram, you take a picture and then you post like a little sentence with it or something like that. And then, and I guess you're limited because I've tried to do paragraphs on there. It doesn't work (laughs) with correct punctuation, by the way. And that doesn't work either. And, and, so, um, and so then you can comment to comment to comment with pictures or with text. Did I say that right? Yes. Okay. So here's what Instagram has decided to do. And maybe it's an experiment or maybe it's a policy. In Australia, in Canada, in Ireland, and some other countries around the world, they removed the like button. Now, do you know what the like button is? Facebook has one. Instagram has one. Okay, if you hit the like button, what does that mean? Does it mean that you like what's being posted? No. It doesn't mean you like it. It means that you you noticed it. Am I saying that right, Philip? Yeah. Yeah, you have, you're, you're dying to say something here. Well, yeah. well some, some additional clarity on that. They, it's not that they removed the like button. They removed the ability to see how many likes a post gets. That's correct. And so, yeah, thank you for that clarity. Okay. So why would they do that? Well, a lot of people gauge their importance on how many likes or how many requests or the social media really kind of determines how popular they are, how liked they are. That's correct. What they began to notice was that people were just posting things in order to get a like, irrespective of the value of whatever it was that they were posting or even the contribution that it would have to anything. So when you think about it from a social media perspective, what that suggests is, is that the kind of thing that people notice the most is what? Yeah, but what would, what would, ge- what would generate more likes than, than fewer likes? If it's not about liking, it's more about noticing. It's the more outrageous or the more whatever, a tender. It, it's not necessarily of any value to society or even to that person. It's all about how many likes can I get, and the more likes I get, the more I'm noticed. And then from a, probably from a commerce perspective, there would be ads built into that and some other things, which then the interviewer said, well, why didn't you do that in the U.S.? Because that's where the cash cow is. 
that in the U.S. we're way more focused on how many likes I can get and how noticed I can be than maybe perhaps it would be, and of course the population's greater here than would be in Australia. But I just thought that was a very interesting thing that says a lot about what people are thirsting for. But notice how temporary that is. And notice how it's contingent then on my ability to put something out there that you are gonna notice and react to. Now all of a sudden it isn't about how I can be of benefit to you. It's how you can be of benefit to me. And the more I do it, the more I live for it. And the more I live for it, then my hope is built on what now? <laughs> See? It's built on how people might feel about me in a given moment. And then, therefore, how I might feel about myself on the basis of how other people feel about me. Yeah, a couple hands, Jane. I think that's why the guy rode the scooter down Interstate 35 so he could get TV time. Now say that again. I'll see the guy that rode the scooter down 35. Is there a guy that rode a scooter down I-35? Like yesterday or something? Last week. To see how many likes he would get? Was he like going the right way or wrong way? Or? <laughs> 35E? Wow. I mean, I've seen some people, that's their normal way to drive, but wow. And he, they t he said that he wanted to see how many people would notice that. Yeah. What, what, you know, the number of people who in the process of taking selfies have fallen off the Grand Canyon. <laughs> Unbelievable. You know, it's sort of like that. You know, we all do that with each other. We go, uh, move a little closer to the left. Move, you know, back up just a little bit. Well, you're saying that to yourself. Back up just a little bit. Oh, ah. So, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what the heck, you know? So, anyway, it's just, it, but it says a lot, doesn't it? See, to be an observer of that and to think, what is that saying about what people are thirsting for. And is there something better? Is it possible that you could be filled with something? Not that it would eliminate social media and all that. I mean, that's all here to stay. It's not, it's not that. Or saying, oh, bad, bad, evil, evil. It's not that. What it's saying is, I'm going to build my life around something that counts and that something, it, it, it lasts and it takes me through the most profound and significant changes in my life. And it gives a, a constancy there that is not, con is, is not it, the constancy takes a little hit when you experience difficulties in life. It does. But it doesn't kill it. That's what I want to build my life around. And that's what Jesus is offering to her. And she's kind of starting to pick up on it, right? Sir, give me this living water so that I won't be thirsty again. People today are dying for something to fill that thirst. So what do you thirst for? Ouch. See, some of the same stuff that we look at other people and say, oh boy, those people, they are so shallow. I thirst for that. I like for people to like me. Yeah. yeah. Do you like me? 
Oh, good. <laughs> I feel better. I feel better. Yeah, I feel better. Give me a list of the things that I do that make you like me, and then well, I'll, I'll feel more secure then. Yeah. Oh, that is brutal. Okay. Okay, deep breathe. My hope is built on nothing less than Marvin's love. Yes. Yes, thank you. Yep. This is just something sure. I thank you. Thinking about that. People now seem to be much more looking for something, you yeah. know. Yeah. And I think possibly because so many families no longer from maybe last maybe I didn't quit going to church. Can so mm -hmm. they don't have that church upbringing and having God in the forefront of their their life. So mm -hmm. they don't even know that they're searching for God. Yeah, I think sometimes people are searching blindfolded. To some degree, I think it goes to the heart, it goes to the issue of what's in your core. So when we talk about core, I use the word core to describe kind of the same word as foundation. So I use that synonymously with each other, okay? So if my core, let's just describe it like this, okay? If my core is solid in the sense that my identity in terms of who I am, I have a sense of purpose in the world, and I'm connected via God's grace through Christ, that core will get tested throughout life because temptation and and achievement and the world and even my own flesh in terms of my own doubts and things like that internally, it, you know, it takes a hit, but, but it doesn't destroy it because it's built around this and the reality of what Jesus did for me. And because that's a reality, that's not just like, oh, I wish it was that way. It is that way. Then what that does is that gives me a different perspective toward the things of life, whatever the things of life might be. Is there any research on why, I mean, it's not just the United States, it's all over like Europe, where even worse in Europe where you know, the churches are now becoming roller rinks and uh, museums, museums mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But <laughs> like my daughter, she, most of their couple, their friends with kids, hardly any of them go to church mm -hmm. anymore. You know, mm -hmm. back when I was a kid, like all my friends went to church. Yeah, so the world has changed its perspective toward that. Well, I mean, to some degree, you could say that there's been an erosion of a commitment to trusting that the Bible is God's word inerrant and, and foundational for life. It, it, that as soon as I start to uh, erode that, and, and in Europe in particular, through a lot of more biblically li uh, liberal uh, approaches to the Bible, and we've talked about that in here, that I'm taking, I'm taking the foundation and I'm chopping away at it. So when I start to do that, even if I'm simply doing it intellectually, like, oh, this is kind of what intellectuals do many times, okay, question things like that. Well, then 
that where do I get that sense of assurance that grace through Christ is where it's at? Okay, so there's there's probably a myriad of reasons for it. Okay, Um, and we can probably talk about that at different points. But to kind of get back to this. All right. So the things of life. So out here are the externals of what people think will satisfy the thirst. So what are some things that people think will satisfy the thirst? Well, let's see. If I have security and if I'm safe, then, that'll, then, then, that, then I won't be thirsty anymore. If I have enough money, that will, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be okay. If, um, if I'm loved or accepted for who I am. And and so the reality is the externals are not bad. They're they're all good things, right? But that's not the core. That's not the foundation. Because the reality is, is these, all those things can be taken away. You can lose every single one of those. And if your life and feeling good about your life is dependent on these things, you're going to live in constant fear. And the fear will be, what do, I, what, do I, what do I do if I lose that? What if somebody tries to take that away from me? What, that isn't a, that's a, isn't a great life. So, so what, what I'm hearing Jesus talk about here in terms of this idea of thirst is that the living water, see the living water, the Holy Spirit and faith and, and, and forgiveness and relationship with God and all those things through what Jesus did for me, that's what sustains us even if all those other things are in question. And that's how you can sleep at night. Because if your life is all about this, you're not getting much sleep at night. Stock market's all over the map. People don't like you, except for Marvin likes me, but that's a short list. You know, all those things. See, that's what's going to keep you awake at night. What gives you sleep at night is this. So, does that make sense? Yeah, Kathy. So, would it be a true statement to say, if you are content with your life, you're not thirsting for anything? What are you basing contentment on? I always ask that question. What is it based on? A feeling? A feeling and that you're not out looking for more. That's that kind of the, always gotta have more. The message of today is, is that if you don't have more, you don't have anything. And I would believe that if I didn't have this. Or if I was uncertain about this. Then what else? What else is there? Well, then there's this. But how, when is enough enough? See, so the question is always, what do I base that on? Is it based on something of me that I created, that I maintained, that I, that, that, that I sustained, that I held on to? Remember the parable that Jesus told about the rich guy that uh, had a good crop? And so what he did with his crop was he said, wow, oh, man, this is awesome. I'm having a great crop. I'm going to build even bigger barns, Right. And then I'm going to take what I have accumulated and now am keeping for myself. I'm going to do what? Sit back, eat, drink, and be merry. And what does uh, God do in that parable? He says what? Oh, tonight you're, uh, today you're going to die. Well, then what? Who gets all that? See, it's, 
it, it, you, you can't take it with you. So if you're going to base your, your temporal security and your eternal security on that, then that says a lot about what isn't here. Okay? That's the point. So does the object of your thirst change as you age? I have always wanted to be loved, Marvin. <laughs> so let me just get that on the table right away. All right, and there's some core things, right? We, we want the security of being loved. We want security of not being abandoned. You know, those kind of pro, sort of primal ages, zero to two kinds of things, okay? Um, but are you noticing that there are some thirsts that you had when you were younger that you don't have now that you're old? Durr. Do what? Not being lonely. Yeah, big. Okay, good. Yeah. What about being relevant? Is that important to, to you, to be relevant? Like if you had something to say, people would like listen to you. Some of us as we age in parenting, we're noticing some of that's changing, right? Okay. Yeah. So again, it, it, it probably says that there are some basic things that don't change. Somebody once said, how you were in seventh grade is how you are for the rest of your life. <laughs> oh, that got a rise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like insecure and noticing pimples on your nose and, you know, all that kind of stuff that we did when we were in seventh grade. And some of those sort of basic uh, insecurities might, in fact, stay with us. So there's, you know, maybe give some thought to that a little bit. All right. Um, so here's the question. And it's kind of the bottom line question. Is the thing that you're thirsting for or the thing that you think will give you will quench your thirst? Does it give life? Is it living? Or is it dead? That's the question. And that's a way that we can kind of discern what our priorities are in life and to some degree, am I, feeding the, am I feeding the priorities that have more to do with this core, or am I feeding priorities that have to do with the acquisition of the externals? And that's, that's a question that we always, I think, have to ask ourselves all the time, to sort of check yourself at the door. And is what I'm aiming for in life, is what I'm demonstrating to other people is what I'm putting out on social media is, is what I'm portraying of myself. Is it giving life or is it taking away from life? That's a good question to ask. Thoughts? Thoughts about that? Okay, good, good, good stuff. Okay, now here comes the fun part. Everything's been leading up to the fun part, right? So now Jesus shifts it again. They're talking about living water, and they're talking about thirst. And she says, oh, I want some of that water because then I don't ever have to come to the well again and because this is really a hassle. And so then Jesus says what? Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answers, I have no husband. Why the shift? Does that seem abrupt? Yes, it does. Jesus has just been, she's been talking about thirst, and she's still operating on the physical water side, right? Jesus is operating on the spiritual plane, the spiritual level. And so what he does is he goes at the heart of what her thirst might be. 
And the way he gets at it is by talking about her marital status. Now, she says, I have no husband. In that day and age, what, what prospects of survival did unmarried women or widowed women or divorced women have? Because we want to get that out there. Very little, okay? Because there were no social safety net. There was no, you know, social services. There wasn't anything like that. The, the only provision that was made in the Old Testament was that if a, if a, uh, a widowed woman had no children, then she would be taken in and married by a brother of the husband. And then there would be some way of uh, either having children or having some provision, some, some food to eat and a place to live and things like that. Okay, that was, that was part of the Old Testament provision. But if you weren't Jewish or you just didn't have, there wasn't a brother or something like that, you know, you're, you're on your own. So very often women would turn to prostitution as a way of, of uh, supporting themselves, all right? The, 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 the reality was, though, that even though women might have done that and seen, in some sense, legitimate, uh, legitimatized because of a survival issue, it was still seen in the religious community as deplorable. And very often women would then be lumped together with prostitutes and or, you know, people that uh, did prostitution, uh, either temple prostitution or just regular societal, with sinners. Huh? Temple prostitution was very common among the pagan, the pagan religions. So there were, there were women who were, I think it was mostly women, I, there may have been men, that, that they would be part of the, the fertility rites and the fertility rituals that went on in pagan religions. So if a religion believed that we're agricultural and we need rain, then it would be the, the uh, sexual act between the sun and the clouds or something. It would be something like that. And that would be reenacted in, uh, in religious rites. So very often sexual orgies and that sort of thing was a part of the, uh, the religious life in pagan religions. It was not in Christian, but it was in pagan. Okay? And so that was seen, the, that lifestyle was seen as adultery. It was also seen as uh, sexual immorality. Okay, so that's on the table. And Jesus knows that. So here's what happens. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. I love this. The woman said, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. I love it. Now, how did Jesus know that? He just met her at the well. He's never been to Sakaar. He's not ever seen her before. This is this chance encounter, if you want to call it chance. Maybe, not, maybe it wasn't. But this was just somebody that he just ran into, and she happened to be there, and then they're talking. How does he know that this is her history? He's God. That's how he knew. Okay. And so the, the pertinence of that is, is that she knows she never met him before. He hadn't had a chance to talk to the townspeople. He hadn't had a chance to find out what her reputation was. It wasn't like she put a sign out. It wasn't anything. And she says about this moment, 
this is somebody special. Now notice Jesus' approach with her, though. He calls out her lifestyle without disdaining her. You notice that? Do you pick up on that? He identifies the sin in her life. But he does it without running her down. He doesn't label her. He doesn't say, oh, you're just a terrible person. Oh, you're just, that you're not worth anything. And yet, he still calls sin, sin, doesn't he? He still says the behavior that you've been engaged in, the life that you've been leading, isn't good, isn't right, right? I think we can learn a little bit from that. I find it interesting that, that she keeps calling him sir. It's like he's earned her respect. Mm -hmm. He's earned her attention. Yeah, yeah. That there's something in the dynamic of their exchange or perhaps in the personness of Jesus that he can say about her or us that I, I know sin when I see it. But he does it in a way that doesn't invalidate her or suggest that somehow she is worth less or unworthy of love or respect that she would give him, that he would give her. I'm struck by that. And I think to some degree that's an art that's getting more and more lost in our world today. Because we're getting better and better at calling people out and then running them down. And we do it thinking we're justified because of the fact that what they're doing is sinful, and we know because the Bible says it. And yet, to do it in such a way that that other person, in this case the woman, was still receptive to Jesus being there, and she was receptive to what it was that Jesus was saying, and in fact, we're going to see later next week, <laughs> that she even went and told her friends, and, and they came to see Jesus. That 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 approach that Jesus took with her was remarkable. We can learn some things from that. Because sometimes I think in our fervor to call out sin, we end up pushing the opportunity to be a witness and therefore to share Jesus with people because we were so gung-ho to call sin, sin, and then, in, in, in retrospect, we also harm the person. Yeah. I happened to come across a book called the, the Joy of the Transformed Life. And one of the stories that the author talked about was the woman at the well. Mm -hmm. And in, the, in a couple of questions afterward to think about, he said, what would Jesus say to you if you were the one at the well? Yeah. And kind of self, yeah. Deer in the headlights. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of made me think. It does. It does. To some degree... Might be a stretch, you can think about it. You and I encounter the woman at the well every single day. Driving up to the corner of 75 and Royal. There underneath the sign that says no panhandling is a guy doing the very thing. She's the woman at the well. Somebody that you work with, 
who just annoys you and whose purpose in life seems to be to do that. And they sort of get this little smirky smile on their face when they know they got you. That's the woman at the well. The question is, are you going to be Jesus in that moment? Are you going to be yourself? That's the question. I want you to think about that this week. Bob is going to take us into love next week, so everybody will be much more loving after that, right? Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. Thank, uh, so good stuff. All right, let's close our prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the way that your word challenges us, and it does it in such a personal way. When we look at the story of, of Jesus and the woman, and kind of on the surface, it all, it's kind of one of those moments where Jesus is steering her in a more spiritual way, but then we look at it more deeply, and we realize it says a lot about us and to us. So I would pray to your Lord that you will challenge us this week to not only look at other people as the woman at the well, but also to see ourselves there too. And to realize that you, our Savior, comes to us and calls it out, says there's sin there. But you do it in a way that tells us that you do it out of love for us. And that then you do it offering to us the gift of your grace. And through the gift of your grace, you give to us the gift of forgiveness. So help us, Lord, in faith, receive that, live it, and then share it with each other this coming week. Watch over us, Lord, and keep us close to you until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.